Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week we go over UFC Vegas 20, headlined by Cyril Gunn and Jerzinho Rosenstrike, another heavyweight battle, the third heavyweight main event we've had in the last several weeks. And this is an important one too, especially for uh, Cyril Gunn, who's taken his first ever uh, main event in the UFC. Jerzinho, on the other hand, has had a couple main events to this point, uh, but uh, this is definitely a spot where Ghana should rise to the occasion and put on one of his best performances, but you guys will find out more about that in the breakdown later on this podcast. Great card from top to bottom. You know what I mean? I, I'm really looking forward to what, what comes to the table here. We got like Ankalai versus Krylov on this fight, Menafield versus Knight, which should be a great fight, Alexander Hernandez versus Thiago, uh, Thiago Moises. That's a great fight. Um... We did have Cowboy Oliver and Randy uh, Brown fall off. That was a fight that I was very much looking forward to. But also, Jimmy Rivera versus Pedro Munoz. That's a great fight. And Dustin Jacoby versus Maxime Gershon should be a fun, fun fight too. So very much looking forward to this card. We had Hani Barcelos fall off as well too. Within 24 hours of his fight being announced against uh, Marcelo Hojo or Rojo, I believe the guy's name was. Um, but yeah, great fight uh, regardless, or great card overall regardless. I'm really looking forward to it. All right, before we get into the breakdowns, obviously I like to go over my UFC betting recap because we don't hide from losses here. We don't yell at people and argue with people about our losses. We talk about our losses, we put our head down, and move on to the next event. But not without talking about it first because your boy transparent. There's nothing you guys can ever bring at me that I'm a fraud or anything like that. Your boy brings transparency one-on-one no matter what. So that's that's kind of my focus here. So we'll go over this last event. Um, we'll start off with the Dog of the Night play, or we'll start off with the hits. Uh, 1.5 units uh, at plus 120 on Jared Gordon. That cashes for plus 1.8 units. Uh, you know, I believe a lot of people were just buying too much into Donnie Chavez's fight against TJ Brown, completely disregarding everything that Jared Gordon has done in his UFC career thus far. And we see, you know, a great performance from Jared Gordon, albeit he missed weight by four pounds. You know, uh, can't really control something like that, especially after you've already made the bet. So, a uh, good win for Jared Gordon there to get back on track, uh, or sorry, to string together two wins. Uh, the other win that we had was John Castaneda. I had one unit uh, on a parley of him and Jamal Emers. We obviously know what happened with Jamal Emers. He pulls out pretty much as Chas Kelly is in the octagon. Uh, and then it turns into a one unit on Castaneda at minus 122. Big win for him there. 0.82 unit profit on that pick. And then it was just the yells, right? We had... Uh, this is the one that I regret the most. So I had a one and a half unit parlay on the under one and a half of uh, Alexei Olenek versus Chris Delkis. That obviously hits. Probably should have been the lock of the night play too. Uh, and then we had uh, Vieira parlayed with them at minus 280. Uh, so that parlay was 1.5 units at plus 118. Absolute lazy and horseshit bet for me. You know I mean, that's the one that I will absolutely say that, that you know, not one of my prouder bets and it's not even a lock of the night play but it's a one of those where i'm just like let me get a slightly better line on the minus 165 on the under one and a half and Dalkis and and Linux. that was a great price tag regardless why the hell did i want to try to make it a better line by throwing Vieira in there who just you know missed weight so that didn't look good either and that fight was obviously uh closer than it played out to be or than the odds indicated so very very lazy approach for me there i'm very disappointed in myself in that aspect uh you know yeah super bummer there 
Then we lose uh, minus 2.5 units on the under 2.5 of the Rosa and Minner fight. Uh, minus 160 was the line on that. I know a lot of people that were on that line. Uh, you know, in the end now, it, it seems like a, a bit of a trap line. A lot of people are reading into the Derek Minner side of things. You know, uh, 22 of 25 victories via decision, or sorry, via, via submission. And then combined, I believe it was 45 of 53 fights uh, hit the under one and a half, under two and a half. Uh, so that was about an 85% uh, hit rate. And the odds at minus 160-ish were implying uh, a 63% hit rate. So you're getting solid value if you're just talking about statistics. Unfortunately, that one whiffs there. Um, and uh, then the lock of the night play. Four units on Curtis Blades to win inside the distance. At minus 167, I still believe that was not a bad bet. Uh, I, I'd probably make that bet again. Um, I truly believe it was like a 80% uh, favorable matchup for Curtis Blades in terms of going out there and, and doing what he does. And he showed another wrinkle in his game, which was uh, a, an improved stand-up game where he was able to just stay on the outside and pick apart uh, Derek, uh, Derek Lewis. And I kind of wish that he just stuck with it, right? Maybe he was just kind of scared about the, the pressure and uh, potential blitzes coming his way from Derek Lewis if this fight had remained on the feet. But he just runs into an uppercut and gets knocked the hell out. So the 20% outcome of Curtis Blades getting that knockout came to fruition. That's a variance for you. That's a high variance spot in, uh, in uh, or sorry, a low variance spot in uh, in an MMA fight. And Curtis, or uh, Derek Lewis, definitely has the power to put out anybody's lights. So yeah, that, that one sucks. Uh, that, that, that one kind of hurt. But uh, I, I'm not as mad about that loss as I am... You know the the Mike Rodriguez play or the Prakniao and Roundtree under one and a half or um, what was before that the Manir Lizez one right like I've made the changes in terms of not investing heavily on bum fights uh, and, and picking a high level guys to to go out there and and do my work and I picked Blades he's a high level guy still a top three guy in my opinion uh, the low variance thing just played out like Kamaru Usman last week right or the week before that I should say. High-level guy, got caught early in that fight, survived in it, and then went on and, and won in that third round. So I, I, I'm backing high-level guys, and that doesn't change for this upcoming event. So uh, I, let me just put a bow on the recap. Minus 5.38 units on that uh, play. That brings us down to, you know, minus 17 units on the year. Uh, we've we got about five events under our belt or six events under our belt at this time. Plenty more year to go, uh, but I've definitely learned from my mistakes in January, and I regret nothing other than uh, playing Ketlin Vieira uh, as part of my parlay. That's the only thing I regret from this last event. Everything else, I'm completely fine with. I mean, I'm completely fine with losing the under two and a half and that Rosa and Minner fight. All the statistics and numbers and and stylistic matchup uh, things that you wanted were all there. Uh, and the Curtis Blades thing, it was all there. Everybody got duped by uh, by Blades. So maybe the under one and a half, or sorry, the, the under probably was would have been the better play, but it is what it is. I'm, I'm okay with it. We're moving on. We got a great card coming up again, and I already got a couple plays in mind. Uh, not in mind, but I have a couple play, bets placed, and I have a couple more that I'm probably going to be releasing throughout the week. So uh, shout out to everybody on the Patreon that already knows what those plays are. Uh, as you guys know, the plays will drop for free on Friday, but if you don't want to wait that long and the odds might change in that amount of time, you're more than welcome to sign up for the Patreon. The link is in the description below. Five bucks a month. 
You guys get early access to the breakdowns that you guys are about to see. You guys get uh, all my picks, obviously. Uh, the best bets and props article. Um, a Discord community that's just very lively, very helpful, and very friendly. Uh, love the guys that are in there right now. Shout out to anybody that's watching the podcast that's a part of the Patreon crew. Uh, and then we have a couple other perks there. So just check out the link in the description below. Everything's there. Secondly, coolbet.com. Make sure you guys go sign up with them. If you're in Canada, uh, also it seems like uh, there's a bunch of Scandinavian countries that are involved with that as well. Uh, the link is uh, the link is not the link, but information is in the description below. But if you guys go to coolbet.com, uh, sign up using the bonus code MMALOTN2. That's the number two. You guys will get your initial bonus or sorry initial deposit matched up to two hundred dollars, hundred percent matched up to two hundred dollars. So it's a great website. They got great odds. You can parlay props. Uh, they have great live betting and something that I just released recently found out. You can live bet as the fight's going on. So not just in between rounds, but as the fight's going on, you can live bet. And that's a great solid tool. So make sure you guys go check out live bet. Once again, the bonus code is MMALOTN2. All right. That's pretty much a wrap. I got my Patreon plug. I got my betting recap. I got my cool bet plug. Let's get into the breakdowns. Appreciate you guys watching. Again, uh, last thing. Subscribe and like below as well too. That really helps if you're watching this on YouTube. It helps your boy out a lot. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Appreciate it. All right, let's get into the breakdowns and hopefully we can win you some more money this weekend. Dustin Jacoby versus Maxime Grishin. We got minus 185 on Jacoby and plus 160 on Maxime Grishin. Let's start off on the Grishin side of things who's coming off a... Uh, victory over uh, Gadzmurad Antigulov. That was a fight where I had the under one and a half. And we didn't get the Antigulov in round one that we normally get. For some reason, he was just going out there and, and biding his time for some reason, thinking that that's going to change the outcome of the fight. Then the second round starts, and that's when we see the vintage Antigulov going forward, landing a takedown, but not doing a good enough job in terms of keeping his opponent down, letting his opponent get back to the feet. And then by that time, Gadzimurad, uh Antigulov is just absolutely huffing and puffing. And we see Maxim Grishin go out there and just put it on him right um just just overwhelms him with uh just overwhelms him with volume with pace with pressure and, and then eventually it just puts away Antigulov late in that second round there was about two or three seconds left in that second round either way it probably would have been done early third round as well too so bummer that I missed on the under one and a half there, but Grishin went in there and did exactly what he should have done. Uh, before that, we saw Grishin have his UFC debut against Marcin Taibura, and that was uh, after he had had a couple stints in the PFL and came up short in terms of winning the entire tournament. But the Taibura fight, you see the size difference, right? Grishin is a big light heavyweight, but Marcin Taibura is a legit heavyweight. So, uh, or, sorry, heavyweight. So we saw Taibura, you know, pretty much bully him that entire fight. Get a couple takedowns, push him up against the cage, land some good shots from distance but we didn't really see Grishin have uh the best performance that night right for some reason it seems like he's content which is pretty much staying on his back foot letting his opponent kind of pressure him and push him back and that's not really what you want to do against a guy like Dustin Jacoby who's really going to be able to put it on you with the striking leg kicks you know high kicks whatever the hell it is Dustin Jacoby definitely has the ingredients to to make it a living hell for uh, Maxime Grishin now going into the tape for this fight it was a fight that I'm like oh 
there's probably some solid dog value on Grishin here, considering that he has a wealth of MMA experience, whereas Dustin Jacoby, as of late, has mainly just been focused on kickboxing and glory kickboxing and all that. But when you really run the tape, you see that uh, Jacoby is very efficient with the strikes, right? Solid calf kick, which really rendered Justin Ledette useless in their fight, and he was able to finish him relatively quickly. Uh, and then even in the, the Ty Flores fight on the, the contender series, just putting it on him. You could have stopped that fight on multiple occasions, but Ty Flores was just hella durable hella gritty and just had a ton of heart and pretty much just uh you know saw that fight through but this fight against Grishin, I think that Grishin is going to have trouble kind of closing the distance, getting his paws on him, clinching up with him, and even getting to the ground, which is probably where he has his best advantage. I think that uh, Jacoby is just going to be able to kind of light him up on the feet, you know, start off with those calf kicks, uh, keep him on the outside. He's a big dude himself, too. He's grown a ton of confidence in his striking, and it's definitely been showing over his last several fights which is where I think that he's going to have the massive advantage over Grishin here, who's just a little bit too slow, uh, you know, a good all-around MMA fighter, but doesn't really shine particularly well at one specific martial art. You know what I mean? He has a good top rusher, he has some good wrestling, but I feel it's something that uh, Dustin Jacoby will be able to, you know, retaliate against and, and kind of just uh, be able to shuck off the takedowns and, and keep this fight at range where he'll be able to unload those laugh leg kicks, notably those calf kicks, and it's going to start to slow down Grishin. And uh, we'll see, you know, uh, Grishin continue to, to accept the back foot just as he does in most of his fights. And we'll see um, Jacoby kind of, hmm, I don't know if it'll be a decision. It could potentially be a be a KO as well too, maybe a TKO. But Jacoby's just been looking so good as of late. It's hard to truly go against him, even at uh, you know the plus one sixty five ish line that Christian is currently at. Uh, I like Jacoby. Uh, personally, I'd like better odds on, on him too as well. Uh, I'll probably stay away from this fight, but I'd, I'd maybe peak the Jacoby inside the distance line. You know what? Let's just check that out live on the podcast right now. Jacoby. Oh, and they released it. Thank God. Jacoby inside the distance, we got plus 175. Not too shabby. Grishin is quite durable. The last time we actually saw him finish, so he lost to Marcin Taibura by a decision. The last time he got finished was in 2016 when he got knocked out by none other than Mr. Komen event himself, uh, Magomed Ankalaev. So it's going to take a guy like Ankalaev to kind of put out uh, Grisham. But then again, just kind of skimming over his his resume between Ankalaev and coming to the UFC, nobody really jumps out of the page uh, that has the striking acumen of a Dustin Jacoby. So maybe Jacoby could find that finish of his own again. Maybe that plus 175 is going to be some solid value, as I do think that Grisham, you know, he he's just going to... I believe he'll accept that back foot. I believe Jacoby will be the one kind of moving forward, using his jab, using his leg kicks, and really kind of diminishing uh, the game of Grishin and really won't be able to get him going. So um, at the minus 185 line, I'm staying off the money line, but the the inside the distance is definitely intriguing at plus 175. So I'll go with uh, Jacoby to win this fight via second round TKO. Ronnie Lawrence versus Vince Cachero. Uh, we got minus 155 on Ronnie Lawrence and plus 135 on Cachero. Let's start off on the Cachero side of things, who's uh, coming off a loss to Jamal Emers in his UFC debut. Uh, but you can't really fault the dude, right? The guy came in on short notice, came up a weight class, finding a much bigger guy. And especially when you watch that fight, you see the difference uh, in size and weight and, and seeing that Jamal Emers just absolutely had him covered pretty much everywhere in that fight. But... You can take small things out of that, right? 
one thing that we saw from Jamal Emers was solid distance striking. You know what I mean? Good kicks up the middle, uh, combinations from the outside. And that's kind of the Ronnie Lawrence game, right? Just stay on the outside, kick as much as possible, try to keep your opponent on the outside. And then when you want to, go in for the takedowns. And you can't really compare the wrestling of uh, Vince Cash or sorry, uh, Jamal Emers and Ronnie Lawrence. Just again, you got to take the size into consideration there as well too. But I do think that Ronnie Lawrence shows great fight IQ and is able to to complete takedowns when re- when he needs it, but also to secure rounds if it's required. But Vince Castro looks like a solid striker. Some good uh, leg kicks as well too. Seems to throw a lot of heat in his punches. But I think that he's just a little bit. Um, on the on the weak side when it comes to the grappling in the wrestling realm like we do see decent hips from him every now and then but uh in most of his fights he is giving up takedowns and ronnie lawrence does a really good job in terms of mixing up uh his strikes with his takedowns to kind of keep his opponent uh second guessing themselves whether they should be going in on a on a strike whether they should be countering whether they should be sprawling ronnie lawrence does a good job of mixing all of that stuff up i'm trying to find you know, a, a good reason to back Cashero here. Uh, you know, I, I do believe he has the hand advantage, like the boxing advantage here against uh, against Ronnie. And I do think that if he stands his ground and really lets the strikes go and, and kind of just counters every time Ronnie Lawrence crashes forward, he could have some success. You know, one fight that this kind of reminds me of is the Viviani Araujo fight and uh, Jessica I, where we saw Araujo playing on the outside. And every time that she closed the distance to try to get her strikes off, we saw Jessica I just respond by standing her ground and throwing a combination in return. And I feel like that's the that's the method that Cashero is going to have to take here, as I don't think that he's just going to be able to track down Lawrence. Lawrence does a good job of continuously moving, circling landing his spinning kicks, landing good shots down the middle, good body kicks as well too. And then again, when he needs it, he's able to shoot. And I think that with the amount of like uh, physical overload and, and action overload that uh, Ronnie Lawrence is going to be throwing at Cashero, I think he's going to have a tough time kind of reading what's coming next and where it's going to be coming from and whether it's a takedown or whether it's just a feint that he's going to end up uh, you know, following up with some punches and some good kicks as well too. So I'm on the Ronnie Lawrence side. I'm not so, you know, keen on going out there and betting him at minus 155. Maybe if this was like closer to a pick'em line or something, I'd feel a little bit more inclined to be on the Ronnie side. But uh, yeah, I just have no interest in betting this fight as we could see a possible, you know, um, improvement uh, from Vince uh, regarding his, uh, his second fight in the UFC. Whereas Ronnie Lawrence, uh, I feel like we will see improvements from him on a fight-to-fight basis. One thing that I like from him is that we see him go, jumping around to a lot of different gyms over his career. But most recently, he's been spending time at Sanford MMA, which is a solid spot. Originally, he's from Nashville, and I believe he's fighting out of uh, a Nashville MMA team down there. But uh, Sanford MMA must have done wonders for him, right? Like. You see guys coming out of uh, Sanford MMA that are having just absolutely phenomenal performances and performances like they've never had in the past before. Notably Phil Hawes that we saw last time uh, go out there and win a decision. You know what I mean, never went to a third round ever in his life. And then he goes out there for the first time going to a third round and winning a decision in his career. Right. So there's those instances where Sanford MMA can truly take these guys to the next level and they might be able to do that for Ronnie Lawrence here, 
who seems to have a very clear path to victory and a very effective style too, right? It's it's hard to track this guy down. He moves so well. And anytime that you try to close the distance and try to corral him, he gets some shots off, he gets his kicks off, he keeps you at distance, or he just counters with a, a takedown of his own. And more often than not, it seems like he's completing these takedowns. So I like what we see from, uh, from uh, Ronnie. And to be honest, I feel like his last opponent was a little bit more threatening. Uh, I think I think the guy's name was Jose Johnson. Um, yeah, Jose Johnson the guy that he beat on the contender series there and i believe he came in as an underdog as well too yeah he came in as a plus two plus 260 is that plus 260 yeesh kabish yeah plus 260 underdog according to uh topology so that yeah that's uh you see the ever-improving game from ronnie lawrence there, and i think that's what he's going to be able to do here mix up his kicks mix up his movement and then get a couple takedowns and i think he should secure himself a decision victory Alonzo Menafield versus William Knight and this fight is pretty much a pick em. we do see uh, Alonzo Menafield as a slight favorite on most of these uh, bookies as well too but no higher than like minus 115 minus 120 so let's start off on the Alonzo Menafield side who's coming off a two uh, two fight losing streak both of those being his only ever losses in his career and uh, definitely a wake-up call that he required especially getting away with the ways he's been winning in his prior fights right the Deshaun Boatwright fight I believe that was an eight second fight uh Vinicius Mojea the guy had nothing to give to him on the feet uh and uh, Alonzo Menafield was able to make him pay and get the knockout there Paul Craig same thing was able to get him out of there relatively quickly now the the Devin Clark fight you know a lot of people expected uh Menafield to go in there as a minus 230 favor and absolutely starch uh Clark but Clark did a good job of you know keeping this fight in the clinch areas keeping this fight you know skin to skin so that Menafield couldn't really get his shots off and then by the time uh, Menafield you know um you know got into the third round most of the energy and pop was really off of his shots whereas uh you know Devin Clark continued to move forward uh kept the pressure on him uh and and did really really good work uh, you do have to give Menafield some props in that fight though we did see him keep the fight on the feet for the most part struck off a, a, a bunch of takedowns uh and Devin Clark was just left you know trying to pr pretty much clinch fuck him and get a bunch of control time and win the fight that way and he was successful in doing so against Hovind St. Prue we just saw Menafield show you know it, it was it was a tough fight we saw OSP, you know, pretty much on his bicycle the entire time. I was happy to catch OSP in that fight at that plus 140 range. But uh, we saw OSP continuously moving, even though uh, Alonzo Menafield was the one moving forward for the most part. But we saw him ripping that kick up the body. You know what I mean? And from that southpaw stance, we saw OSP just absolute butcher the body of Alonzo Menafield with that front kick up the middle. And it was landing pretty much at all times. In that second round, there's an instance where there was like 15 or 16 unanswered strikes from OSP, uh, you know, uh, against uh, Menafield, where he just kept ripping the body. And Menafield just didn't know how to close the distance, didn't really know how to put his punches together, and seemed quite lost out there. And that's very unfortunate to see from a guy, especially from Fortis MMA, under the tutelage of Safe Sayud, as you believe uh, somebody like that would be able to, you know, have a plan b if things really weren't going their way but you know it could have been the cardio it could have been the fact that menafield just really didn't know how to close that uh distance uh, effectively and those body shots were definitely adding up so you don't want to take too much away from those as well too now menafield we know his game right he moves forward he likes to throw bombs and more often than not his opponents fall before him but when they're not things get a little bit sketchy as we saw in his last two fights uh against clark and osp right uh, also, talk about a beautiful counter 
from OSP to put uh, Menafield's lights out. Beautiful, beautiful finish there from OSP. Now, William Knight, on the other hand, we're talking about a fighter that's 9-1. His only losses to Tafan and Chukwi, who's in the UFC now as well. Um, you know, almost a similar style where he was just going out there and absolutely battering these guys on the feet. You know, showing that he could still finish guys later in fights too. I believe the Rocky Edwards fight is one that went into the third round. Still got to finish there. But that second round was pretty much an entire stalemate. I was just saw Rocky Edwards on the back of William Knight. And William Knight just holding on for dear life with uh, on that one arm of Rocky Edwards. Pretty much keeping his stalemate. No damage done. No real work being done from either guy. So we saw William Knight come out in that second round, second round and look much better. Look cleaner and crisper and landing the, the a beautiful one to, to drop uh, Rocky Edwards on his butt. Then we saw William Knight come into the uh, Cody Brundage fight. That was the Contender Series fight. And uh, Brundage gets the takedown, gets his back almost immediately. And we see a similar thing like we saw in the Rocky Edwards fight. We saw William Knight just holding onto that arm. And uh, Cody just could not get it out. The, uh, um, the referee, or sorry, Cody eventually uh, tries to move, uh, especially from the, 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 the instigation from Herb Dean in terms of threatening him that he's going to uh, put them back on the feet, and then we see William Knight take advantage of that of that transition, uh, get back to his feet, and then Brundage right back in on a takedown, and we see William Knight ring down those Travis Brown style elbows and get the finish uh, there. The Alexa Camor fight, that was a very solid fight and a good showcase that we saw from William Knight, and that's the type of fighter. Or that's the type of fight I want to see from guys like a Tom Aspinall, right? I, I was kind of shitting on Aspinall the other week, saying that we've never seen him in the second and third round have solid cardio. Then he goes out there and proceeds to finish Sharlovsky within the first minute of that second round. But it still doesn't answer my questions, which seem like uh, Tom Aspinall slowing down a little bit in that in that first round. And I'd like to still see how he looks in round two and round three. Whereas William Knight, we've seen him, you know, in a grueling fight, uh, a clinch-heavy fight, both guys wearing on each other in the cage. But in that second round, we saw William Knight land a beautiful takedown, beautiful trip takedown. In the third round, same thing, saw him land a beautiful trip takedown and then doing some good work from on top, maintaining that position. Will he be able to get Alonzo Menafield done? I'm a little bit skeptical about that. I'm not 100% sure. You know I mean? Given the fact that Devin Clark couldn't get Menafield down, I'll hold him down. Um, I'm not sure if White, sorry, Knight will be able to do the same thing. Uh, I do think though, if that if this fight does play out in the uh, in the grappling and clinching round for the most part, I gotta get I gotta give the slight advantage to William Knight. I feel like he'll he'll have more power and he'll have more uh, cardio as well too to at least last the, last those three rounds and uh, really just continue to put the pressure on William Knight on, on Alonzo Menafield. Now a lot of people might you know say okay. This fight, take the under one and a half, somebody's going to go to sleep. But we often see when two guys that have heavy power go up against each other, that sometimes they just stalemate. And, uh, you know, one guy might just control the clinch realm and the grappling realm, and they end up winning a decision victory, right? Uh, similar instances as of late that come to mind is like Marcin Pracnio versus uh, Khalil Roundtree, uh, Michel Pereira versus Chaos Williams. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that both guys that are knockout artists go, are going to go in there and try to knock each other out. There's got to be a level of respect from both sides and both guys might be like, okay, I don't want to get knocked out, but I do want to play this fight as safe as possible. And from what I've seen in the cage thus far, 
I would have to lean the William Knight side of things because he seems a little bit more uh, aggressive when it comes to the clinch game. We've seen him do some good damage from on top. That is if he's able to get Menafield to the ground. I think the later this fight goes, obviously it's more live for Knight to get him to the ground. Um, but yeah, I lean Knight. In terms of power, it's almost a wash. Um, and uh, yeah, explosiveness is on both guys here. Size is slightly on the Menafield side, who's uh, two inches taller. Or sorry, three inches taller. Uh, William Knight, uh, three inch reach disadvantage as well. Yeah, I'm I'm on the I'm on the William Knight side here, but I just don't see myself playing it. Like if we get a crazy number on the over one and a half, I'd probably look at that. But outside of that, this fight I'm I'm gonna stay away from. Maybe on DraftKings it might be a solid play on either side, considering there there could potentially be a knockout. But I would not be entirely surprised if we see this fight go 15 minutes. So maybe even looking at that fight goes to decision line might be something to look at. But uh, I do like Knight here. I think he'll be able to control the positions more. I think his uh, his chin and durability will hold up. And, um, you know, I think Menafield is truly one of those guys that will be knockout or bust every time out. And uh, I think that William Knight will just have more in the tank at this point in time and has definitely showcased more to us uh, in his past fights. So I'll go on the William Knight side of things. Uh, again, though, I will say if he does end up on his back, things could get a little bit iffy, but I'm not entirely sure or sold on what the top game of Benefield is like and if he'll truly even be able to hold a guy like William Knight down. Uh, we, we did see William Knight uh, get held down by Jamel Jones, but that guy was definitely a weight class above, took that fight on short notice, and uh, was holding down William Knight pretty easily. And then once we saw the next round start, we saw uh, Jamel just absolutely gas out. William Knight landed a bunch of bombs, and uh, Jamel actually absolutely tapped out in that fight. So durability, longevity, cardio, I lean William Knight. And I think that's all, like, that main X factor is going to be all it takes for the guy uh, to get their hand raised. So I'll be going with William Knight, and I'll go with, oh, man, I'm going to say decision. I can't believe I'm saying it, especially for a fight like this, but I'm going to say decision because I think that we'll see this fight play out similar to the Alexa Kamor fight where we see these guys just clinch up time and time again. Uh, nobody gets a real shot off enough that will knock the other guy out um, and maybe see William Knight uh, get this fight through the ground. The only thing that gives me pause is the fact that Devin Clark wasn't able to get the takedown, uh, but we'll see what kind of game that William Knight's able to bring here and if he's able to get Menafield to the ground. So I'll go with uh, William Knight to win this fight via decision. Alexis Davis versus Sabina Mazzo. We got minus 240 on the club Colombian Sabina Mazzo and plus 200 on the Canadian Alexis Davis. Let's start off on the Alexis Davis side of things. Who hasn't fought since UFC 240, which was still the, the night that uh, Max Holloway defeated Frankie Edgar, if you guys remember, up there in Edmonton. Uh, she drops a decision to Viviani Araujo, who obviously has been looking very good as of late. That's on the tail end of a three-fight losing streak that she's currently on. Her fight with Jennifer Maya before that went to a decision. Very close fight. Could have gone either way, in my opinion. We did see uh, scores on both sides there, but we did see some good things from uh, Alexis Davis in that fight, too, that pertains to this upcoming fight against Sabina Mazzo. And then before that, she drops a decision to Chukagin. Very close fight. But the interesting thing about all three of these fights that she's lost, she's just slightly outstruck her opponents in those fights significant strikes especially so um very intriguing how the that uh panned out um but still obviously those women 
you know, a little bit younger, a little bit more crisp, and and, and did enough damage in those uh, in those fights. You know, the Jennifer Maya fight, we saw her do a good job of pushing her up against the cage, uh, landing a takedown, and even doing some good damage from on top, and accruing a good amount of control time as well. In the Viviane Arujo fight, we saw her, you know, not doing the greatest in the first round. The second round, uh, Araujo lands a nice takedown, but, uh, you know, a little bit too lazy on top. And we see Davis pull off a sweep and she ends up pretty much on top of her for a full half round. Um, solid work from uh, Alexis Davis there. And then in the third round, the speed and the agility and the strength and the youth of Viviane Arujo really shone through uh, in that fight. Uh, in that round specifically and she was able to pull away with that decision victory there but Alexis Davis you know 36 years old still shows some solid traits uh, as a fighter now right like she she has improved striking but obviously not like nothing crazy especially to the level of Sabina Mazzo but enough to at least be passable and then she still shows good inter uh good pressure, good forward movement, and and uh you know just moving forward. I I think that's very positive for her, especially in this fight against Sabina Mazzo, where she's really going to need it. She shows good control up against the cage, and when she gets her opponents to the ground, again she shows great control from on top, which I think is going to be very important here. Another thing that I like that she does very well is that she catches kicks very well and is able to at least push her opponents to the ground and then again accrue that top time which she's so good at. I believe she's a black belt as well too so that definitely helps. Uh, now Sabina Mazo's side of things right she's 23 years old which is absolutely crazy to believe considering that uh, she's had a couple fights in the UFC now. I do want to confirm that number. I don't know why that feels like it's off yet. She's 23. She turn she'll be 24 in March. Um but yeah, she she's still young, trains at Kings MMA, I believe, uh doing some good work over there. Uh she dropped her UFC debut, which is her lone loss uh in her professional career, but that's where a fight where we saw Marina Moroz uh you know just dominate in terms of the grappling and control time and was able to really nullify what was coming back from the Sabino Mazo side of things. The Dobson fight, we saw Sabina go out there and put on her wrestling singlet and get down Dobson pretty much the entire fight and uh, do some good work from on top, securing that decision victory. Uh, the J.J. Aldrich fight, right? That was another close fight. That could have gone either way as well. Uh, it was like the forward movement of J.J. Aldrich against the volume of uh, Sabina Mazzo. I think J.J. Aldrich did some good work on the feet as well too uh, and did some good damage of her own. But uh, obviously the judges were seeing the volume a little bit more from the Sabina Mazzo side. And then the Justine Kish fight. That's another fight where we saw Kish, you know, moving forward at all times, landing good leg kicks, staying active enough, getting a takedown as well at the end of that first round. Uh, she did a really good job of really putting it on Sabina and pushing it. You know, on, on two of the judges' scorecards, uh, they gave Justine Kish both of those first two rounds. One judge apparently gave Sabina Mazzo the first round. I, I, I didn't understand that. Uh, and then it came down to that third round where Sabina Mazzo was able to land a beautifully timed head kick and then follow up with the with the submission victory. You know, very much saving her ass there, especially considering that two judges had Justine Kish win, winning that fight and especially would have secured that decision victory uh, if they saw the final bell there. But, uh, you know, the head kick of Sabina Mazzo uh, bails her out in that situation and she gets her hand raised but man that that was close because I had I had Justine Kish there as well too I had a bet on her plus 180 was a solid spot especially considering that I believe that fight was much closer given the forward movement and the activity of Justine Kish luckily for us 
we get another opportunity here with Alexis Davis, who should be able to implement somewhat of a similar game game plan to Justin Kish in terms of just pushing the pressure and kind of have Sabina Mazo pretty much backing up the entire time. But mixing the takedowns, mixing the cage work, mixing you know her ability to catch kicks, giving uh, Mazo's uh, you know knack for for kicks and how effective she is with them, I fully expect Alexis Davis to go out there and try to catch some of those kicks and follow up with some takedowns or even push Sabina Mazo up against the cage and really get her ca- uh, clinch game working as well. I'm not sure why Mazo continues to be such a heavy favorite in most of her fights. You know, minus 220 against Kish. She was almost pretty much out of pick him against Aldridge. Minus 150 against Dobson. Hindsight, obviously, that's a bit of a steal. But in her UFC debut, she was a minus 165 favorite against Marina Moroz. But here, you know, people think that maybe that Alexis Davis is past her time. And that may be true. But even past her time, I think that she could give issues here to Sabina Mazo in terms of taking her down and controlling her. That's the main thing about Mazo's game is that she gets controlled pretty easily at times now she could be making improvements you know I mean you definitely got to give her that benefit of the doubt at 23 years old but given that we haven't truly seen those improvements inside the cage plus 200 on Alexis Davis does not really look that bad and then that's the side that I'm going to be leaning with here as I do think that Davis will be able to withstand the striking of Sabina Mazo um, you know, her durability is there. Uh, I, I think that her, you know, zombie-like approach to most of her fights, backed up with her improving striking, will allow her to go out there, get these takedowns, close the close the distance, keep Sabina Mazo on the back foot, and uh, hopefully, you know, allows Davis to stay away from the from the the knockout power that Sabina Mazo may have, or at least, you know, the the head kick that she showed against uh, Justine Kish. I'm really hoping that we can see that shine through here for Davis and then continue, continuously push this fight uh, against Sabina Mazo, push her up against the cage, get a couple takedowns, maybe land some good uh, ground and pound uh, and, and take home a decision victory. And and that's how I see Alexis Davis getting this done is just pressure, pressure, pressure. And that's something we can almost guarantee that we're going to see on a fight to fight basis uh, from uh, Alexis Davis. Mix that all in with the amount of... Uh, experience she has 29 fights this is or sorry uh yeah 29 fights this is going to be her 30th fight uh whereas Sabina Mazo has a third of that experience only 10 fights this is going to be her 11th fight um you know again super young going up against a tough grizzled veteran but a lot of people like to count out Alexis Davis and not to mention the fact that she's on a three fight losing streak I understand it but if you look at this fight from a stylistic standpoint it makes sense as to why Davis should be able to get her hand raised and which is why this fight should be uh, much closer lined. That came out very weird. I feel like this fight should be closer than what the odds indicate. That's what I'm trying to get across to you guys. Uh, so at plus 200, I think we're getting a solid amount of value on Davis here, given her style and how she should be able to pressure uh, Sabina Mazo, keep her off of her game, stay away from the big shots, and then really just win this fight off of control. And I think that Davis could do that very, very successfully. And especially at plus 200, we're getting some good value. So once again, I'll go with Alexis Davis to win this fight via decision. Alexander Hernandez versus Tiago Moises. We got minus 190 
on Alexander the Great and plus 165 on Tiago Moises. Let's start off on the Alexander Hernandez side of things here, who's coming off a dominant victory over uh, Chris Gutzmacher last time around where he came in as a minus 470 favorite and did exactly what a minus 470 should do. Uh, there were a lot of people kind of counting him out in that fight, myself included, not saying that he wasn't going to win, but we're questioning where he was at in his, in his career. And it seems like he made the the better choice, which is to change camps from that San Antonio area where he was currently training um, or where he was training at the time and now training up there in uh, Denver, Colorado at Factory X Muay Thai. And he's really emerged himself within that crew. One thing that I like about him is that within the first couple months of moving to that gym, he was already ready to travel to Fight Island to just corner a couple of the guys, Brandon Roy Val being one of them. So uh, we're really seeing him adapt that team mentality, not being that one-man solo show anymore. He's going out there and he's really being a teammate, and it feels like he's really turning a corner in terms of his maturity. We're talking about a guy who burst onto the scene, who just knocked out Benio Darius relatively quickly and already was thrown straight to the Wolves, right? Olivia Obama-Mercy at that point in time was already an established guy within the UFC, whereas Alexander Hernandez was just a, a young spry kid who knocked out a, a top 10 guy <clears throat> relatively quickly. And, uh, you know, he, he gets the win overall, Bombers, yay, outstrikes him. You know, he gets over seven minutes of control time as well, too. Shows off his complete MMA game and not just going out there and just starching a guy in the first round. And then he runs into Cowboy Cerrone, which was that vet lesson that he needed to really change his game around. The Trinaldo fight was a weird one, right? That was one where we just, almost nothing happened. So it's almost like uh, we, we couldn't really chalk anything up to that. Maybe he got a little bit of that hometown rub as well, too, as I believe that was that UFC San Antonio card. <clears throat> Now, uh, and then after that, he goes out there and fights Drew Dober. You know, striking looks great. Don't get me wrong. His striking looked really good. Unfortunately for him, he was going up against a better striker, a more, uh, you know, a lifelong-ish striker in Drew Dober, at least more than Alexander Hernandez was doing at that point in time, right? Not to mention the pace and the pressure that Dober was putting on him was eventually going to break Alexander Hernandez, right? Just staying in his face, throwing the combinations, not letting him breathe, uh, targeting the body, just great overall performance from the Team Elevation uh, alum, um, Drew Dober. So great performance from him there. And then we see Hernandez change camps, go over to Factory X Muay Thai, put his career in Mark Montoya's hand, and he gets a great performance against Chris Grootsmacher where he just, his striking, he just could not miss. Like every strike he threw was on the button. And, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a testament to, uh, you know, the imp uh, the improvements in the confidence of Alexander Hernandez. But also, you know, Chris Grootsmacher, stylistically, he's a little bit of a punching bag when he's going up against a guy who's, who's athletically that much better than him and that's exactly what Hernandez was that night but I feel like this is another tailor-made matchup for him here in Tiago Moises who jiu-jitsu guy who has decent striking capabilities but is definitely going to be slower to the punch is not going to be able to put on the type of pressure that a Drew Dober did nor will he be able to sustain that over 15 minutes and I feel like this could look closer to how Alexander or sorry Tiago Moises versus Michael Johnson did in that first round where he's just getting pinned up. And I think that's what exactly Hernandez will be able to do here. You know, he's going to, again, much quicker striker. He'll be able to put those combinations together before Tiago Moises even knows what happened to him. Um, you know, again, Moises, decent striking, uh, decent head kick as well, too. I believe he has a couple of head kick knockouts on his record. But um, <clears throat> it, it's going to be tough for him. Obviously, the better wrestler here, Alexander Hernandez. So if Tiago Moises wants to take this fight to the ground, I think he's really going to struggle in doing so. And uh, even if Hernandez does decide to take this fight down later in the fight, 
I think he'd be able to survive in the guard of Tiago Moises, who, in my opinion, is starting to look a little bit more overrated in that in that grappling realm. Um, he's 25 years old, so maybe he's still making a little bit of improvements. Great ATT alum as well, too. A great training camp behind him on a two-fight winning streak. But let's not forget, you know, that Michael Johnson fight for five minutes, who's getting lit up in that first round, possible 10-8 there. And then Michael Johnson has a complete misstep and uh, gets heel hooked uh, early in that second round. And then the Bobby Green fight, super close, questionable fight IQ from Bobby Green at the end, especially trying to, uh, you know, jump for that Kimura and then ending up on the bottom and Tiago Moises, you know, gathering more control time, gathering some more damage and then uh, winning the judges' scorecards there. Say what you want about the decision, you know, Bobby Green always fights close in his fights. Tiago Moises did what he could to keep that fight as close as possible, and he got his arm raised that night. However, Alexander Hernandez is just another athletic beast. I think his cardio will hold up. I think his striking will hold up, and I think it's going to look really, really bad for Tiago Moises. I wouldn't be surprised if we see another Alexander Hernandez finish. I mean, I doubt we see him go out there and try to grapple fuck Tiago Moises right off the bat. I think he's going to go out there and, and lay it on him. Uh, his movement, his striking, everything is just going to be much more crisp than what Thiago Moises will bring to the table. And I, I think Moises is really going to start to fade probably halfway through this fight. You know, halfway, uh, maybe at the tail end of the first round, we'll see him start to get demoralized. You know, being at such a speed disadvantage, at a strength disadvantage, it's going to be really tough. Now, the way that Thiago Moises wins, wins this fight is... If he successfully gets it to the ground, like I just don't see him putting the combinations together to to give Alexander Hernandez trouble. I don't see him being able to put on the pressure that's really going to break Hernandez the way that Drew Dober did. You know, I mean, Drew Dober, not only did he have the pressure, but he had the striking to back it up. Tiago Moises has decent striking, but just not to the level of a Drew Dober. So that's where my pause comes here for Tiago Moises. Plus 165 seems like a decent price tag on a guy like Tiago Moises, but you're you're bringing in an, a reinvigorated Alexander Hernandez who looked amazing in his last fight. Again, a little bit of an asterisk there considering his level of competition, but you got to believe that the Factory X guys are just doing such great work with these types of guys. Now you have a guy in Alexander Hernandez, you know, um, his 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 athleticism is off the charts he's already skilled he already has all the skill sets that he's bringing to the table and now you have a mastermind like mark montoya that's able to craft it and make it a much better product and that's what we saw in the grits marker fight and i expect to see even more improvements as his his career continues uh training up there in denver again only 28 years old still has a ton of room to grow, has a, a wealth of experience under his belt now, especially after that big Benio Darius knockout and how he, uh, how his career transpired after that. But I think that's what he needed to really shake his uh, head up a little bit and, and get back right on the on the right track. So I do like uh, Hernandez here, and I do think he has a solid shot of going out there and just putting it on uh, Tiago Moises. Again, I'm recording this on the, the, the Saturday before the event, um, or Saturday before the fight, so a week before, and we don't have props right now, so I'd be very interested to see what Hernandez via KO is, as I think that's a very solid spot here. We haven't seen Thiago Moises knocked out in the UFC, but this is the first time, in my opinion, he's fighting a striker that has the power and the pop of Hernandez. Like, Demiris Magulov is a great fighter, in my opinion, top potential top five fighter who just isn't active enough but Ismagulov is more efficient with his strikers right he's he's more of a, a point fighter I'd say whereas Alexander Hernandez is going to be looking to take your head off if he's not looking to grapple fuck you which I don't think he'll do here uh, at least not early in this fight 
But again, Hernandez is, is going to put the pressure on him, and I think he's gonna, I think he's gonna break him, and I think he's gonna knock him out. So I'll say Hernandez probably by. Mm, I'll give Moises a little bit of benefit of the doubt that I think he'll be able to survive that first round. But I'll say Hernandez to win this fight via second round KO. Alex Caceres versus Kevin Kroom. We got minus 210 on Caceres and plus 175 on the hard-hitting hillbilly Kevin Kroom. So Alex Caceres actually opened up at minus 225, got down to 235, and I was up to minus 210. And I think people are starting to get a little bit more privy to who exactly Kevin Kroom is. But let's start off on the, the Bruce Leroy side, who's coming off a three-fight winning streak now. Uh, that's wins over Steven Peterson, Chase Hooper, and Austin Springer, who stepped in on short short notice for Giga Chikadze. I'd be very interested to see how that Chikadze fight would have went uh, for for Bruce Leroy. Me thinks not the greatest, but uh, he did go out there and uh, defeat Austin Springer in a very solid uh, uh, manner as well too. Um, we saw Springer go dive in for a takedown and perfectly countered by Caceres with a nice little uppercut that kind of stunned him and then he followed up with a rear naked choke that got the victory there. Before that, Pulled off a big, uh, a solid upset over Chase Hooper, who a lot of people were high on, thinking that uh, if you know Caceres was getting choked out by the the Cron Gracies and and the Jason Knights, that uh, automatically Chase Hooper was going to be able to do the same thing. Caceres proves them wrong, does a good job of keeping the fight on the feet, and uh, pretty much just keeping Chase Hooper at range, uh, and even did f uh, mess around a little bit on the feet, or sorry, on the ground, uh, and was safe enough to you know cruise home to a decision victory. So good win for him there. Uh, now going up against Kevin Kroom, I think he's just getting a lot of love from the recent 3-5 winning streak that he's on, but Kevin Kroom offers up a lot of uh, tough spots for him here. We know Caceres, he needs his range to really get his game going, uh, his kicking game is really good, uh, solid speed, very unorthodox approach to his striking, uh, he throws a lot of spinning stuff, a lot of flying stuff, has some solid jujitsu as well too, uh, but I truly believe that once he gets space and his opponent allows him to kind of operate at that distance, at that kicking distance, he's pretty much on cruise control and he can take home a decision victory. Unfortunately for him, he's not getting that in Kevin Kroom here. You know, I think that Kevin Kroom is very live to go out there and, and spring the upset here. And that's by just moving forward, landing some good shots, uh, maybe get a couple of takedowns if he's feeling frisky about it. But I do think that most of his uh, success will come from just pushing, uh, you know, pushing the pace on Alex Caceres. Kevin Kroom has a solid gas tank. We did see him go five rounds before he came into the UFC against uh, Anderson Hutchinson, uh, taking home the FAC title that night. But he has a solid wealth of experience as well, too. We're talking about a guy that has over 33 fights coming into his 34th fight. Um, I believe, well, this will be his 35th fight since that no contest for the Roosevelt Roberts fight. Again, the guy stepped in on short notice, popped for marijuana. Could you really blame the guy? Like, I, I you know... I feel very bad that he got that uh, that loss taken off his record. But apparently rules are rules. But he came into that fight as a pretty significant underdog to Roosevelt Roberts. I think it was around the plus 350, plus 375 range. And he lands a big bomb right to begin with and then follows up with the power guillotine choke that uh, Roosevelt Roberts just was not able to get out of. So very solid performance there from Kevin Kroon. But it was only 31 seconds, right? How much could we really learn from that 31 seconds? Luckily enough... For Kevin Kroom, we have a wealth of uh, tape available on him, and you can see him going out there and showcasing that pace, pressure, and uh, cardio type of game uh, that we normally see from him. You wouldn't expect, you know, solid work from a guy with the nickname Hard-Hitting Hillbilly, but James Krause has done a really good job in terms of rounding this guy out to be a very good MMA fighter, and especially... 
pay some pressure, man. I'm going to pee, uh, continue to to um, bang on that throughout this breakdown, as I believe that's his uh, path to victory here. And he has some solid volume as well, too. It's not just he's just moving forward. He's actually throwing strikes, elbows, punches, kicks, and he has a solid Muay Thai clinch game as well, too, where he's able to rain uh, elbows on his opponent's head and do some good damage from there as well. If he wants to go for the takedown, I believe the takedown is there for him, too. I do think he has to mind his P's and Q's a little bit, being on the ground with uh, Bruce Leroy, but I don't think that it's something that he hasn't seen in the past before. You know, he does have, I believe he has more fights. Yeah, he does have more fights here than Alex Caceres, and he's been fighting some solid uh, competition on the regional scene, right? Uh, Anderson Hutchinson, again, somebody that I highly rank. Uh, John Macapa Teixeira, who's a Bellator veteran. Derek Minner, he's fought on the on the uh, regional scene as well too, Matt Bissett, um, you know, solid names that he's finding throughout his career and, you know, getting wins over some of these guys as well too. So I do rate Kevin Kroom and I do think that he's a solid underdog spot here too. I wouldn't even be surprised if he should be a favorite too. Yeah, I mean, the, given his style, I don't think he's going to give uh, Alex Caceres the room to operate to really get his game going. So uh, I'm on the Kevin Kroom train here. I think that he even springs the uh, the upset via decision here. I think he's a solid spot. Uh, plus 175 is currently where his line is at, and the line is starting to dig down. So if you're on the Kevin Kroom train, I think you get on it now because I think the more people that start to, start to look into this fight, the more people will be like, oh, I should probably have money on this underdog. Like, it's almost starting to remind me of Sung Woo Choi uh, the other week against Yusuf Zalal. I missed the train there. I don't think I'm going to miss a train here on Kevin Kroom, who deserves uh, to be, you know, much closer. This should be a pick him, if anything, as I do believe that Kevin Kroom has all the chops, not to mention the solid head coaching of uh, Mr. James Kraus and Glory, Glory Kickboxing, or Glory MMA, I believe that they're called. Glory MMA and Fitness is their name. But uh, Kevin Kroom's doing some good work over there, and I'm sure he wants to get back onto the winning track um, with his last fight going to a no contest. So I got Mr. Kevin Kroom to win this fight via a decision. Angela Hill versus Ashley Yoder. We got minus 300 and rising for Angela Hill uh, and plus 240 for the spider monkey Ashley Yoder. Now, this is a rematch from a fight that happened in 2017 at the Ultimate Fighter 28 finale, I believe it was. But it was the night that Michael Johnson welcomed Justin Gaethje to the UFC. Uh, and we got a spectacular fight between them. But Angela Hill came out ahead in that fight against Ashley Yoder where she was able to, you know, keep the fight on the feet for the most part. Uh, uh, she did get taken down a couple times, but again, did spring up to the feet and did some good damage from uh, from the striking realm, uh, especially with her kicks, and that definitely gave her the advantage and the victory that night. Um, in terms of recently, though, like, well, actually, that was, uh, I do want to touch on this. That was the second stint uh, for Angela Hill in the UFC. If you guys remember, she was on the Ultimate Fighter 20, uh, had a couple fights, went on a two-fight losing streak to Tisha Torres and Rose Namajunas, who was only four fights deep into her career at the time, gets cut from the UFC, goes down to an Invicta, uh, wins four fights, including capturing that Invicta title, and then comes back into the UFC, I believe on short notice, against Jessica Andrade, and she drops that fight. The next fight for her, was against Ashley Yoder. Now, since Angela Hill has been back in the UFC, her record is now six and seven, which is a little bit salty. Uh, but a lot of people will say that she probably deserved uh, the victories against Claudia Gadelia and Michelle Watterson. But 
Angelica has nobody but uh, to her, but to blame, but herself. And I, you know, everybody can tell her that she always fights close to her opponents. Uh, you know, she never really changes up her game much. Uh, she always has volume, but her opponents are always able to land good shots in return. Maybe more damaging shots, more uh, shots that are more impactful in the judges' eyes. Whereas Angelica just continues to do the same thing, right? She normally is the one kind of marching forward and, and and stalking her opponent and landing some good shots from the outside, but she still eats shots in return, and it may look worse on the judges uh, in the judges' eyes than it does for other opponents. Now, in her last fight, she did have a main event against Michelle Watterson. They were taking that fight, or at least that main event slot on short notice since Alexander Rakic and uh, or sorry, Glover Teixeira and Tiago Santos were not able to go that night, but. You know, we saw them ready to go five rounds. Michelle Watterson had already been five rounds several times. Angela Hill had been to five rounds a couple times as well. Uh, but but we saw Michelle Watterson, you know, uh, pull ahead in that fight. There were a lot of different scorecards on that uh, from all three judges, but they did uh, unanimously give it to Angela Hill in that fight. Or, or sorry, to, to Michelle Watterson. But that was one, again, where we saw Angela Hill marching down Michelle Watterson. Watterson doing a good enough job in terms of landing counter strikes and landing strikes of her own. Now, not to mention getting a, a, a takedown here and there and doing some good damage from on top as well as accruing a solid amount of control time. And I, that's where I kind of lean on here with Ashley Yoder who, you know, back when they fought in 2017, she was a purple belt. And she's just been working her butt off and now she's a black belt. So I feel like if she does get this fight back to the ground and back to the positions that gave Angela Hill some fits, she might be a little bit more... Uh, you know, uh, might be a little bit more disciplined and be able to keep that top position and not really let it get away from her like she did in that fight against Angela Hill the first time around, right? Uh, we saw her fight Miranda Granger last time around, and uh, I believe she dropped that first round, and then the second and third, we saw her truly start to come forward, uh, get the takedowns uh, relatively quickly as well, too, and even enough to get a 10-8 on pretty much all the three judges' scorecards uh, in that third round against Miranda Granger. So Yoder is improving on a fight-to-fight basis, though. Now, they both still have salty records, 12-9 and nine for Hill, 8-6 and six for Ashley Yoder, um, but I think that... Um, you know, Yoder being slightly younger at 33 years old, 36 for Angela Hill. Uh, I, I think this fight should be much closer in terms of odds. Now, I'm not talking about like pick um or minus 150 or something like that. Or, or sorry, or like a minus 120, minus 125. But I still give Ashley Yoder roughly like a 40-ish percent chance of winning. You know, plus 300 would indicate that she has a 25% chance of winning. And I think that's a little bit too optimistic, especially if you're a, an Angela Hill backer. We know she fights close fights. Why are you willing to pay the chalk on a woman that uh, on a woman that fights close fights like this? And I don't care if they you know fought each other in the past and Angela Hill beat her that time. It wasn't a blowout by any means. You know, I mean, Angela uh, Ashley Yoder still shows that she kind of has a, have the chops to go out there, take her opponents down, use her size and her strength strength against them. You know, she's gonna have a four inch height advantage here as well as a five inch reach advantage. I think she she will be able to close the distance here, bully Angela Hill up against the cage, get her to the ground, not to mention showing off that work that she's been doing at Dan Henderson's training camp. You know what I mean? A, a lot of the work that you see uh, on her IG and, and some of the footage that's being released is her working up against the cage, working up against the wall, uh, trying to get takedowns from there. But that's her game. Get that black belt going. And I'd be surprised if we see Angela Hill keep the distance consistently for 15 minutes. So yeah, you bet your ass I'd be willing to take a little bit of a sprinkle on Yoder at plus 300. Now, I will take 
Angela Hill uh, to win this fight, as I do think that uh, she should be able to keep the uh, keep this fight on the feet for the most part and really land some good damage from the outside. But I'm not counting out Ashley Yoder. Uh, you know, if this was a uh, a 50-50 fight in terms of the the odds, I'd probably lean uh, Angela Hill here in terms of making a bet on her. Um, or actually, not even a bet, but at least um, saying that 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 you know, okay. It, this is a fight that Angela Hill should win. But at the odds that are currently indicated, and again, they're only going to get worse. I only expect them to get worse as the fight week goes on, as I believe that people are going to continue to parlay uh, Angela Hill in this spot. And I think that's going to be a very bad mistake. I think that Yoder is live here. If she hits plus 300 on one of my books, I'm going to have to at least take a 0.5 unit stab. There's just too much value there to pass up, given the improvements that we've seen from her, given the fact that we've still seen Angela L getting taken down uh, in her fights. Most of her fights, she's still getting taken down. Um, that's a concern for me. And against a, a solid black belt like Ashley Yoder, I think Angela Hill could be in some issues and maybe struggle to get back to her feet. But, you know, from what we've seen in her last several fights, she is able to get back to her feet. She's able to do some good work and kind of make up for that control time that she gave up, which is why I'll predict Angela Hill to win here. But from a betting perspective, I'd be on the Ashley Yoder side. And that's the side that I'll probably make a bet on. Again, only a half unit play here, especially at plus 300. You don't need to risk too much to make at least a, a good little a bit of coin there um and that's the way i'm gonna i'm gonna be looking to approach this fight so i'll take An angela hill to win this fight via decision but don't be surprised if you see me with the ashley yoder ticket by the time this fight goes down jimmy rivera versus pedro munoz and this is a rematch uh of a fight that happened uh, several years ago now i just don't want, i want to confirm actually exactly when that fight had taken place that was in november of 2015 and that was the second fight in the ufc for one jimmy rivera and in terms of odds we got roughly around minus 140 for jimmy rivera and plus 120 on pedro munoz so if you guys remember that first fight it did go jimmy rivera's way um for some reason it was a split decision but it seemed like it should have been a unanimous all around um you know jimmy rivera pretty much won every single round uh, i didn't see how much uh, damage Pedro Munoz truly put out there he did hit him and hurt him a couple of times but I feel like the majority of work that Jimmy Rivera did in that fight was um, you know much more than we saw from from Pedro Munoz we did see Jimmy start to slow down slightly in that third round but he still was able to do enough in my opinion to win that round uh, but since that fight we've seen him put together a better game his cardio has definitely improved and we see him able to go out there and fight for a full 15 minutes without showing as much uh, of a compromised gas tank as we saw from him in that uh, in that first fight now in his last four five fights he's gone two and three but his last uh, but those losses uh, you know not the not the worst in the world he gets head kicked by Marlon Moraes 33 seconds into their fight I'm going to chalk that up to you know just absolute shit luck in terms of that's the only time we've seen him finished via strikes usually he's a quite durable individual uh then he goes out there and loses to aljamain sterling via decision and that was a very weird fight where we saw aljo right off the bat just start shooting for takedowns he went over for seven on takedowns but he did manage to accrue a decent amount of control time and in that amount of time he really seemed to just 
just disrupt the timing and the and the game of Jimmy Rivera in that fight. And we saw him kind of just go out there and stay within kicking range, land a bunch of kicks from distance, get a couple of shots off uh, in terms of strikes as well too. But uh, overall, it was just a very frustrating matchup for him. And you could see it, especially when he goes back to his corners and um, when he goes back to his corner and he, it, you know, verbalizes that to his to his corner and his coaches. He's just like, I, I you know, I'm, I feel off today. I'm not on my game, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's not just because of, you know, him being off of his game, but it was due to Aljamain Sterling going in there and just disrupting his flow and his and the, the type of fight that Jimmy Rivera normally brings to the table. So, you know, great work on Aljamain Sterling's part to go out there and actually give that type of fight and, and disrupt a game of Jimmy Rivera, who is known to be a pretty reliable fighter who can go out there and get his strikes off no matter what's happening in that fight. Um, but yeah, that was one that was a very tough one for him. Then the Piotr Jan fight. I think that's a fight that a lot of people need to go back and watch because that was a much closer fight than uh, history seems to to perceive it as. Like that first round, pretty much winning that entire first round up until getting dropped at the end with like 15 seconds left. So he gives up that round. I get it. A knockdown. The second round, I'd say a little bit stronger of a round for Piotr Jan, uh, but still very close round up until the point that Piotr Jan knocks him down again right at the ending of the run. And that third round, I thought Jimmy Rivera did enough to actually uh, get the judges nod there, uh, at least for that third round. Uh, but yeah, that was a very close fight. Probably the closest fight we've seen bantamweight champion Piotr Jan in up until this point in his UFC career. So I, I still think that Jimmy has it, and that was only two fights ago. We're talking about June of 2019, so over a year and a half ago at this point. But I truly think that he's still one of the higher level guys at this weight class. Then he goes out there and he beats Cody Stamen in July. Uh, and that was somewhat of a weird fight in terms of being short notice. This fight happening at 145 pounds and Cody Stamen, you know, coming off a quick win over, not a quick win, but a, a pretty decisive win over Brian Kelleher right before that. And he just jumped right back into the cage and got uh, got his game going again. But uh, some people want to call that fight a close fight. That was a clean 30-27. The only reason it seemed close is because Cody Stamen's out there just dry humping him up against the cage not able to get him down i think he completed one takedown uh, i do want to confirm that number though but um you know he made it close just because he was clinching onto him the entire time okay cody stamen completed one takedown out of five attempts so he went 20 percent on that one uh jimmy rivera actually completed two takedowns of his own but still landed a total of 90 strikes compared to the 62 that were coming back his way from uh cody stamen and cody stamen did accrue close to four and a half minutes of control time but very very minimal damage and during that control time he's the one getting hit by jimmy rivera who was defending the takedown but also dishing out damage so that was a clear 30 27 all around in my opinion i think the best moment for cody stamen in that fight was when he landed that flying knee i think it was close to the end of the second round but uh yeah that was a clear fight for jimmy rivera where he did enough damage defended enough and was able to go out there and, and get the dub now if people want to compare that fight to what we're going to see with pedro munoz i think they're going to be sorely mistaken like when have you ever seen pedro munoz uh, you know just clench onto dudes like that and just try to hold them and and overpower them i don't think that's his game plan that's not what he's like he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu his main go-to move is the guillotine, but we don't really see him going out there chasing takedowns. Like he's one of those, I'm trying to compare, like there's always those jujitsu guys that are super high level on the ground. So they just throw caution to the wind when they're on the feet uh, because they don't mind getting taken down. Because normally when you go out there and start throwing all these heavy strikes and you force your opponent to, you know, 
try to get out of that situation. They normally shoot for a takedown, and in doing so, they leave their uh, their neck out there. And Pedro Munoz is a master of snatching up people's necks. Um, how he's going to grab the neck of Jimmy Rivera here, that non-existent neck of Mr. Stocky Jimmy Rivera, I don't think that's going to happen. We saw Pedro Munoz try to clamp onto it in their first fight, but Jimmy Rivera did a really good job in terms of getting out of those positions, exploding out of those positions. The guy is a little ball of energy, and he has very good Muay Thai skills as well too, which is where I think is going to be the difference maker here. Pedro Munoz, I like to call him, like with all due respect, I like to call him the watching, walking punching bag because he brings that style where he's just marching forward pretty much at all times, trying to throw heat in every single one of his strikes tries to change it up every now and then in terms of throwing calf kicks but that's something that Jimmy Rivera is very uh, privy to he throws a lot of calf kicks of his own and he's a Muay Thai specialist so you don't really see those calf kicks working on guys that actually you know are well versed in that realm like it's going to work against a wrestler it's going to work against a boxer but in terms of a Muay Thai and kickboxing guy like uh, Jimmy Rivera just like we saw when Mark D. Casey fought uh, Rafael Fizayev you know, I mean, Fizayev was more than privy to the calf kicks and was able to check them and make it a lot more difficult for Mike T.A. Casey to get his game going. And I expect the same thing here if Pedro Munoz wants to go out there and try to, you know, really get the leg kick game going or the calf kick game going. I think he's going to get checked. I think he's going to get countered. And I think we're going to see Jimmy Rivera get the better of the striking exchanges, which is what this fight will come down to. I'd be very surprised if we see Pedro Munoz land a takedown. And I'd be very surprised to see this fight take place on the ground at any point in this fight. I'm expecting Jimmy to go out there do his Muay Thai thing where he's landing combinations from range, landing some good kicks, and then doing a very good job of pivoting off after he throws his combinations to nullify the amount of damage that is coming back his way. I am very confident in this pick. I really, really like Jimmy Rivera here. Again, the only real knock on his fight in, uh, in, his, in his game and uh, the, the possible path to victory for Pedro Munoz is if he knocks out Jimmy Rivera, just as Marlon Moraes was able to. But I don't think that we'll see that. I think that was more of an anomaly for uh, Jimmy Rivera. Like, he got knocked down twice by Piotr Jan, but his senses were all there. Like, Piotr Jan is able to put dudes out, but Jimmy Rivera ate them, got dropped, but was still able to come back uh, and, and uh, you know, continue fighting. And even after getting dropped uh, in those first two rounds, he was able to go out there and have a very good third round against Piotr Jan as well, too. So, uh, you know, Pedro Munoz, good fighter, but I think he struggles against guys that technically have a better advantage, uh, or sorry, are technically technically better than him on the feet. And I think that Jimmy Rivera is miles ahead of him on the feet. And that's where this fight is mostly going to take place. And I think Jimmy Rivera still has high upside in terms of one day fighting for a title. He's only 31 years old, still getting better, getting in some good experience. Um, you know, fall, fell a couple times against Marais and Sterling and Jan, but those are high-level losses, um, and again, that Piotr Jan fight being as close as it was, I truly think that he can make it competitive if they were to fight once again. So I like Jimmy Rivera here. I don't even mind the decision prop, which I currently think is around plus 120. Um, you guys know me. I don't really like overs or playing decision props, but um, I went over my history of uh, decision prop bets that I've made, and I had Jimmy Rivera over John Dodson two units at plus 150 by decision. And uh, thankfully that one came through for me. It might be another approach that I'm looking at here, but I do like the line that we're getting regardless. Like I believe if, um, I do want to confirm this number, but uh, the implied odds. So let's say like the, the bookies that I'm using, we can get uh, Jimmy Rivera around minus 138, minus 139. But 
just for the sake of this podcast, let's say he has a minus 140 uh, is what his line is. The implied odds there are 58% uh, for him to win personally. I think it's uh, the, the the only way for Pedro Munoz to win this fight is if he knocks out Jimmy Rivera. And I think that's a very low percentage uh, to hit. So I'd, I'd put Jimmy Rivera all the way up to even like 70%. I believe he has that good of a chance of winning this fight. Uh, which would put him roughly around that minus 230 range. So, uh, yeah, I think people might be reading too far into this, which is why Pedro Munoz should win this fight. Uh, but I like Jimmy Rivera pretty much at all points. He's going to go out there. He's going to go out, strike him. Uh, he, and I think he's going to make it look easy too. So I got Jimmy Rivera to win this fight via decision. Montana De La Rosa versus Myra Bueno Silva. We got plus 115 on De La Rosa and minus 135 on Bueno Silva. Let's start off on the Bueno Silva side of things. Who's coming off a victory over Mora Romero Barella last time around, where she we saw her lock up a beautiful submission victory. I believe it was by armbar. Um, and that was after she'd gotten taken down by Barella. And it seems like the takedown is a bit of the kryptonite uh, to Silva's game. Now she's only seven and one. She's only been uh, uh, she's only lost one time, and that was to uh, Marina Moroz, who took a very similar approach in trying to take her down. Uh, definitely gave away that third round as uh, uh, Bueno Silva was starting to come on at that point in time. But she definitely gave away those first two rounds from activity and obviously some top control from uh, from Marina Moroz. Uh, the Jillian Robinson fight, right? We saw Jillian got, get her down. Jillian just, you know, got lazy for a second. And we saw Bueno Silva wrap up another submission there. So um, she does have several submission victories on her record. Uh, so it makes you believe that she's truly active off of her back. And she's very live for a submission no matter who the opponent is. Montana De La Rosa, on the other hand, is a solid wrestler. You know, high school wrestling. Uh, I believe she did wrestle collegially. I could be off on that. But in terms of uh, the, the level of wrestling that she has, she's definitely one of the better women in this division to do so. You know, most of her victories when she is uh, getting her hand raised comes via her getting the fight to the ground and, and, and doing some good work from there. The Nadia Kasim fight, obviously she gets a submission victory there. The the Andrea Lee fight, she gets her down, I believe, four or five times. But the Lee does a good job of getting right back to her feet. She has some decent get-up game for sure, um, unless your name is Roxanne Modafferi for some reason. The Again, Mara Romero Barella, another woman that they share a common opponent with. Uh, and we saw uh, De La Rosa get that fight down on a... On, Pretty much on a round-by-round -round basis and controller from the top position. The Viviani Arujo fight. That one was a tough one for Montana, who took that fight on short notice. Uh, not to mention, uh, you know, the, the 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 style of Arujo was just a very bad matchup for De La Rosa in terms of her striking. You know, she's very fast twitch muscle as well, too. So Montana wasn't really able to track her down, corral her, and get her down. She did get her down once, but not for long. Uh, we saw Arujo get right back to her feet, stay constant with her movement and uh, really caused trouble for De La Rosa on the feet it seemed like the third round that De La Rosa was like accepting of the fact that she's not going to get this woman down so she's just going to go out there and start to strike with her and it's weird seeing <coughs> the level of confidence from De La Rosa in her hands and kind of the swagger that she was fighting with in that third round especially with the bloody and beaten face that she was bringing to the to the table but we we did see have a we did see her have some success uh, with the striking, but Viviani was just too fast, uh, a little bit too much output, and way more powerful as well, too. So you definitely saw the damage on De La Rosa's uh, face in that fight. Now, you can almost make a similar comparison in terms of the Arujo fight and Bueno Silva, given the advantage that Silva
Silva will have in the striking realm in this fight. However, she's just a little bit more static, though. She's a little bit more, uh, she doesn't bounce around as much. She she doesn't move as well as a Viviani. And, you know, she she's definitely more susceptible to getting taken down. And that's where I think that we'll see De La Rosa shine is getting the takedowns and really doing some good damage from on top. She has a solid cardio. She has a solid gas tank as well, especially now working up there in team elevation. Uh, I think they're definitely going to have her prepared and ready to go for a hard, hard three rounds if required. Now, obviously, the, the, the concern also here will be the uh, the, the potential jiu-jitsu game of Bueno Silva, right? She has a ton of submission victories, and if De La Rosa wants to get this fight to the ground, she's going to have to really mind her P's and Q's in terms of making sure that she doesn't get caught in a submission. Now, the only submission loss on De La Rosa's record is Mackenzie Dern. So that's not really too, you know, too bad. Uh, she's managed to survive on the ground against other women as well, too, that are pretty good with their jiu-jitsu game. But to the level of Bueno Silva, it's hard to tell at this point in time. You know, I mean, Jillian Robertson, solid jiu-jitsu player herself, too, but always or more often than not overextended herself at times just to get the finish. And then unfortunately for her, she gets the fin uh, gets finished as well. Uh, Mara Romero Barella, she did get submitted by Courtney Casey not too long before that. So, you know, seeing the women that Bueno Silva is able to submit, uh, obviously it's it's a little bit of a, uh, an advantage for De La Rosa knowing that she's survived against some solid women uh, on the ground. Uh, and the only person to tap her to this point is Mackenzie Dern. So, yeah, I do lean with the dog uh, odds on De La Rosa here. And, you know, I backed her in a ton of her fights. I'm pretty sure she was a lock of the night play for... for for me for, uh, against Kasem and Barella and then I did have her on, on, at dog odds against uh, Leon Araujo uh, but this seems like a, another solid spot that she should be able to take advantage of uh, the the, the lack of takedown defense on Buena Silva's part you know I think that with her having the the size advantage uh, one inch height advantage as well as a uh, inch and a half reach advantage uh, and again working with the guys over there at team elevation they're only going to get her game even better and better so I truly believe that we'll see her on a time and time basis uh, get Bueno Silva down do some good work from on top and we saw again we saw Moreau's truly successful with that and I think we'll see De La Rosa successful as well too um, I assume that this line might get wider and wider as I do believe that there is some love out there on Bueno Silva but I do think that De La Rosa wins this fight I think she just gets it down uh, rides the top position out stays out of the uh, out of the submissions and again in that third run if she's not able to get the the takedowns I think she has good enough durability to at least survive it uh, a la Marina Moroz uh, in that fight as well too so I'll go with the De La Rosa side of things of here. I do think she'll have the advantage uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the power, the wrestling, uh, the durability as well, too. I'd kind of be surprised if we see uh, Bueno Silva finish her with strikes. Um, there is obviously the slight possibility that she can pull off a submission off of her back, too. But I think we'll see uh, De La Rosa play this up very, very safe. So I'll go with De La Rosa. Uh, and one more thing, sorry. I, I do want to talk about the, the improvements that we have been seeing from De La Rosa in terms of her striking. It's a lot better than when she was coming off the Ultimate Fighter. It's a lot better than, uh, you know, that we've been seeing over the last five fights or so. And it definitely showed through in the Vivian Uruja fight. Again, she was getting pieced up by the much crisper and much better striker, but she was making a good account of herself. And I believe that, uh, you know, she should be able to show some of that against... Um, Bueno Silva here as well too and if you guys remember she rocked and dropped uh, Mara Romero Barella in the last round of their fight as well too which ultimately allowed her to uh, you know just ride out that fight from on top she was quite um, 
she was quite uh, offensive from the top as well too in terms of landing good shots and even seeking submissions at times but she was playing it very safe as well too in terms of getting position over submission and I think that's going to be very key for her here against Bueno Silva in terms of not overextending herself and I think she'll do a very good job of that we're gonna we're pretty much seeing her grow up in front of our eyes right she's 26 years old now just turned 26 uh, and she's been in the, uh, the UFC for several years now so I think we're going to see like uh, you know a progression in, a, in in this fighter's career and seeing her get better and better and again switching switching camps to team elevations before that Viviana Rougeau fight was nothing but solid for her and I think it's going to work out very very well for her in this fight against Bueno Sullivan and I think she'll come out on top as the underdog so once again I'll go with Montana De La Rosa to win this fight via decision. Magomed Ankalaev versus Nikita Krylov. We got minus 325 on Magomed and plus 265 on the minor uh, Nikita Krylov. Let's start off with Nikita Krylov, who's coming off a decision victory against Johnny Walker. The first decision victory he's ever won in his career. The second time he's ever gone a full 15 minutes, which is absolutely crazy. Uh, but uh, he he brought out his, his singlet. You know, we got Nikki Russell or Nikki Wrestler uh, that night against Johnny Walker, where he just wanted to stay away from the power of Walker, continuously get the fight to the ground, and did some really good work from on top. Unfortunately, couldn't get Johnny Walker out of there, but did a really good job in terms of securing positions and really sucking the energy out of Walker, uh, really diminishing the knockout power of Johnny Walker that night. And uh, Nikita Grilov did a really good job uh, just, just staying on top, landing some good work from on top, and staying active enough that the referee would not stand them up. So, you know, nice little uh, change up in uh, Nikita Krilov's game, especially considering, you know, he's at 34 fights. He's only 28 years old. The guy's been around forever, just finding the who's who. You know, he, he had his original UFC stint that didn't go the greatest, ended it off with uh, Misha Serkinov choking him out. Then he goes over to M1, I believe it is, somewhere over there in Russia, Fight Night Global. Has a couple fights over there, even fights Fabio Maldonado knocking him out, and then comes back to the UFC. And since then, he's gone two and two. The Glover to Sheriff fight was the one before Johnny Walker, where you know, back and forth grappling exchanges, very close submission attempts from either side. But we saw the grittiness of Glover to Sheriff really shine through in that fight. You know, I believe he notched two reversals in that fight, not to mention a couple of takedowns. I think that was really wearing on Nikita Krolov, and we saw. You know the gas tank issues that Krilov definitely has, uh, and and Glover did a good job of just you know always pulling through, always ending up on top, and doing some good damage as well. The the Ovin Saint Prue fight that's where we saw the cardio on the other hand fill for uh, Nikita Krilov's opponent. You know what I mean? Uh, OSP did a good job of staying on top in that first round, landing a takedown, uh, you know, landing some good damage from on top, going for a couple of submission attempts. But then come that second round, you saw OSP absolutely huffing and puffing, and he just was not ready to go for that second round. And Nikita Krilov took full advantage of that. Uh, I believe you, uh, yeah, he sunk in the rear naked choke. Beautiful submission victory for him there um and yeah it, like it's great seeing that type of improvement from a fighter when it's talking about going up against a specific opponent right the first time he fought osp uh several years prior he got von prude and then he comes back and fights him again in his second uh second fight back with the with the ufc and he chokes him out in the second round now i do want to chalk that up to the cardio issues of one uh Ovin Saint Prue, but you gotta give daps to Nikita Krolov for pulling off the fight the way that he did. 
Uh, the fight before that, Jan Blahovich, that was his return fight to the UFC, where we saw Blahovich, uh, you know, get taken down early, reversed black belt himself to gets uh, on top of Krilov, and then does some good work from on top, and then eventually in that second round, getting that submission victory via arm triangle choke. Absolutely beautiful work from him there uh, to get Nikita Krilov out of there. Now, how he matches up with a guy like Magomed Ankalaev, who mainly a striker, has some good wrestling chops as well too, has only been taken down twice in his UFC career, uh, both of them by Paul Craig in rounds one and round two, but when we saw him get taken down, we saw him pretty much get right back to his feet. He doesn't really settle too often. He, you know, starts working to get back to the cage, uh, get his back up against the cage and work back to the back to his feet. But not only that, but he does a good, uh, really good job of like reversing position. And I believe one of those times that he reverses the position, he he pretty much lands a takedown from his knees. It was absolutely beautiful uh, the work that he did there. And then obviously the last second uh, submission victory for Paul Craig in that fight. That was his UFC debut. The only slip-up. Literally, the only time he he just relaxed a little bit, uh, it got taken advantage of. And other than that, he, you know, he'd have pretty much a perfect career. We're talking about a guy that was one second away from being 15-0. and 0. Uh, So, you know, unfortunate uh, loss for him there. Dominated that fight pretty much from bell to bell until... Uh, Paul Craig was able to uh, snatch up that submission victory. After that, comes back and absolutely takes that aggression out on Marcin Pracnio, knocking him out. Then puts together a very good performance against Klitson Ebreu, where we saw him, you know, uses grappling, uses clinch work, uses striking to really get the game of Klitson Ebreu to be off. And he takes home a decision victory there. The Dolce Lungiambula fight, right? Gets uh, rocked a little bit early in that first round, but makes adjustments almost immediately and then just controls the entirety of that fight. Uh, and then we obviously know the whole Iwan Kutilaba saga, right? The, uh, the first fight, just absolute blown call by the ref there. And then in the second fight, just no questions about it. You know what I mean? Magomed Ankalaev, absolutely the better fighter, the more technical striker, and he made it show, and he made it show with style points as well too. Now, the impressive thing about Ankalaev's approach in his striking game is that he looks so comfortable in both stances that it just doesn't matter what his opponent's bringing to him in terms of the stance, right? When he's fighting a southpaw, he goes orthodox. Or sorry, he, yeah, he goes orthodox. Pretty much mirrors, uh, what, what am I talking about? Uh, it's always the opposite stance that he's going up against. So like, uh, if his opponent wants to come orthodox at him, he's going to come southpaw. If his opponent wants to go ortho or southpaw on him, he'll go orthodox. And he'll stick with it pretty much the entire fight. Or if his opponent wants to switch up the stance, he'll switch it back up so it's always an opposite stance. And he's so comfortable in both spots. Like his left is just as strong as his right. And his hooks, his uppercuts, everything from both stances are just on point. I don't I don't think that I can remember any fighter that that does it as comfortably as he does. Because I'm like watching the tape and I'm just like, okay, is he orthodox or is he southpaw? And then you see like from the, the Abreu fight, Abreu is a southpaw. So you see him fight orthodox pretty much the entire fight. And then you see, uh, the you know, the other fights and he's fighting in, the, in his other stance. It's just so weird, but he does it so effectively. He's very disciplined. He has a 68% uh, striking defense rate because he's very uh, efficient with his strikes. He's very defensively sound. And they that may hurt him in the output uh, a way of things here, right? Like he, he's not really landing the most amount of strikes when he's going 15 minutes. 
but he's definitely landing the more damaging shots. He's waiting for his opponent to, to give him a little bit so that he can take a whole mile. And that's what he does against his opponents. Guys like Nikita Krylov who leave all these openings and might be a little bit too reckless on the feet. Ankalaev is going to pick a guy like that apart. It makes absolute sense why Ankalaev is currently minus 325. Probably going to come up to minus 500 by the time this fight goes off. Now, the only way I think that Krylov truly wins this fight is if one this if this fight does go 15 minutes, if he's the more active guy. But not only does he have to be the more active guy, he has to make sure he's not getting hit, rocked, dropped, or getting his head popped back so many times that the judges actually end up giving it to Ankalaev. Does he finish Ankalaev? Maybe he pulls on, uh, throws up a submission of some sort. I don't know. I don't. I don't really see that either. Does he knock Ankalaev out? From what we've seen thus far, Uncle Ives eaten some pretty big shots from Kutalaba, from Dalcha Lungiambula, from Marcin Prakniel. Does Krilov have that type of knockout power? I'm not 100% sure. I believe that Uncle Ives will be able to walk through him, and I completely understand why he's such a big favorite here. The guy is just so skilled, uh, has a solid wrestling background, master of Sambo, I believe as well, some Greco-Roman wrestling in his, in his past as well too. The guy is just so well-rounded. And he trains with a great team. If you look back at his Instagram, four weeks ago, he's uh, he, he's already in Vegas, you know, getting some rounds in with Francis Ngannou for some reason. But then you also see his other training pictures where he's with Javier Mendes from AKA. He's around the Umar Nurmagomedovs and he's around uh, some of these other guys that are, that are with that camp, with the AKA especially. So I believe that he's getting the best training possible. He has a solid team behind him. He's Dagestani as well too, uh, which is always uh, an incentive. Uh, but I truly think that this guy is a 205-pound champion. And I think he's going to be able to run through uh, Nikita Krylov here, who again, you know, solid chaotic fighter, showed great grappling in his fight against Johnny Walker. Is he going to be able to do that type of work to Ankalaev? I just don't think so. I'd be very surprised if he... Like, he might be able to land some takedowns on Ankalaev, but I'd be very surprised if he truly controls him there enough to at least win rounds. I don't see that happening. Is his chaotic volume style going to cause problems for Ankalaev? I think it just plays into Ankalaev's game, if anything, right? I think we'll see Ankalaev, you know, pick him apart from uh, from, from range. Uh, even when he uh, blitzes forward, his strikes are so proper like his combinations are nice his uppercut is nice his lead hook is always good no matter what stance he's coming from so i think that truly plays into him like baffling his opponents because he's so comfortable from either range so whether nikita wants to approach this with the southpaw or orthodox uh approach uncle i was just gonna you know counter with the exact opposite and he'll be fine so Unless Magomed's chin just magically disappears or if uh, Krilov finds the neck and Ankalaev just really doesn't have any submission defense, uh, I, I don't see how Krilov wins this fight. Um, again, volume-based is a possibility, but I feel like if he's going to be volume-based, Ankalaev is going to find those openings for the counters and it's really going to cause damage to, to Krilov and I wouldn't be surprised if he knocks him out either. So I, I'm not sure which way I'm leaning with this fight. I feel like I don't know if Krilov will be able to hang with him for 15 minutes, so maybe I'll go with Ankalaev second or third round KO. But I did see his decision proper on plus 315, which not too bad given this new style of Krilov that we've been seeing as late. But again, it's been very grapple heavy, and I'm not sure if he's going to be as successful as he was against his last two opponents in the grappling realm, especially with keeping it in that realm. I think Uncle Ive will, will be able to uh, kind of nullify that. Or if anything, maybe just do some good work from on top. So I, I'm split between the KO or decision here. 
I'll go with second or third round KO, but I might have to make a little bit of a sprinkle on that decision prop as well to a plus 300. I think that's a that's a solid spot. Another good spot, in my opinion, here is the over one and a half, which I currently saw around like minus 125, minus 130. I think that's a good spot too, as I do think that this will be a little bit slower paced than the Kutilaba fight. And given how Nikita's been fighting as of late, I could see it definitely going over seven and a half minutes. But the pick's going to be Uncle Ev. And I'll go with Uncle Ev to win this fight by let's say third round KO time for the main event we got Jerzinho Rosenstrike versus Sirogan in a pivotal heavyweight clash we've been getting a lot of big heavyweight fights over the last couple weeks Alistair Overeem versus Alexander Volkov and then obviously most recently Curtis Blades against Derek Lewis and now this is another one where we have a young up-and-comer in Cyril Gunn who, you know, 30 years old, but in the heavyweight division, that's a young, spry 20-year-old, uh, making, uh, you know, his first debut in the heavy or in the, the main event slot. And this is a great matchup for him against Scherzinho Rosenstrike. So as of this recording, which is uh, a full week before the fight is actually happening, it's minus 270 for Ghana and plus 230 for Rosenstrike. Let's start off on the Rosenstrike side of things, who's coming off a victory over Junior Dos Santos. Both of them are actually coming off of victories over jo- Dos Santos. But I got to say that the Rosenstrike one was a little less impressive. It was impressive. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, he knocked him out, gets the victory. But I feel like Ghana did a little bit better in terms of uh, winning that entire the entirety of that fight compared to Rosenstrike, who... If you look at the judges' scorecards, uh, the two of the three judges gave him the first round, uh, or sorry, gave him, uh, sorry, one judge out of the three gave him uh, round one, and the other two gave uh, it to Junior Dos Santos, who seemed to be the more, you know, active fighter, which is weird because when you look at the statistics, you got Rosenstrike up there with, uh, you know, more significant strikes than him in that round, so kind of weird maybe a little bit of miscalculation but it looked like that uh Junior dos santos was a little bit more active in that also he was the one kind of pushing the pace he was the one kind of you know landing the big leg kicks and uh, that's why i think the two judges actually scored that round for jds but what what do scorecards really matter if the guy can put your lights on and that's exactly what rosenstrike does even in his fight against alistair Overeem, you know what i mean uh that was a fight he was probably going on to lose and ends up winning that fight with a couple of seconds left to go on the clock. So uh, he does have fight ending power. And that's kind of what he lives and dies on at this point in time. In his last five fights, he's 4-1. and one, Knocked all of those four opponents out. And obviously got knocked out himself when he fought Francis Ngannou in the UFC's uh, you know return after the whole COVID era. Probably one of the more eerie scenes that we've ever seen in the US, UFC not to mention it being like one of the first events outside of that UFC Brasilia event but there was a uh, UFC 249 I believe it was where we had no crowd first fight at the apex first pay-per-view at the apex and uh, you get these two massive monsters probably the two hardest hitters in the division going up against each other and all you see is Francis Ngannou just bull rush the guy lands his uh, hammer fists and uh, just absolutely does jersey in your own strike you can hear the thuds you can hear everything and even when Rosenstrike hits the ground and hits the back of the cage um you you just hear a silence and it just felt like everybody there just witnessed a murder it's just absolutely insane like you got to start calling Frankie and uh, Francis and Ganu Frankie murders because the guy just goes out there and just puts people's lights out and that's what Jersey and Rosenstrike can do as well too right the guy has a lot of power in his hands uh the the combination that he caught uh, Dos Santos with was nasty he didn't put his lights clean out, but he definitely made his eyes roll back and, and dropped him and then followed up with a bunch of strikes. So good on him for doing that. But the the, the approach that he took in that fight leads me to believe that Cyril Gunn should be able to go out there and do, you know, 
a lot better. And this is stylistically a great matchup for Cyril Ghana. So let's talk about him. He's only had four fights in the UFC, uh, finished three of them. The only one to come via decision was against Tanner Bozo, who's a very tough out. And he pretty much went out there and out Tanner Bozard. Tanner Bozer, you know what I mean? He goes out there and outpoints him and wins the way that Tanner Bozer normally wins his fights. So it's great to see uh, Cyril Ghana pretty much go that uh, that route. We've seen him pull off a couple of submissions. Obviously, the knockout of Jeremy Dos Santos last time around as well. Uh, but the one question mark that I've had about him is how he does off of his back. How he does when somebody actually tries to take him down and is successful with it. And is actually a good wrestler themselves. I mean, there was a, a, a somebody that was going to fight on Fight Island named Antti Delia, I believe his, his name was, uh, PFL heavyweight. And then a couple of days before the fight, PFL was just like, nope, you're still under contract with us. You're not fighting for this uh, on this card. And we're getting like plus 550 on that guy. And I, I sprinkled a little bit on that for sure. It's definitely worth a little bit of a shot considering that we've never really seen Ghana off of his back. He's only 7-0. His first fight for TKO, which was his first professional fight, was for a title. So they knew this guy had a huge amount of potential. But the, again, the only thing we haven't seen him really challenged on is that grappling room. So if he ever gets matched up with Curtis Blades, I'd be very, interesting to, very interested to see how that type of matchup would go. Luckily for him... Jerzyna Rosenstrike is a striker. He's a, he goes forward and he throws his bombs, but he seems a little bit too patient at times, which is why he really I think he really let that first round against Jordan Dos Santos go. And luckily for him, he was able to put him out in that second round, so he didn't have to worry about the scorecards. Whereas Cyril Gano, when he fought Jerry Dos Santos, great, you know, great movement, great kicks, southpaw stance, ripping the kicks to the body, ripping the kicks to the leg, staying active enough. His cardio seemed to check out uh, for as long as that fight was going on, bouncing on the tip of his toes, moving in and out very well. So I think he'll do a really good job in terms of staying away from the big strikes, the Rosen strike, and it really diminishes the amount of chances that Rosenstrike has to win this fight. Now, on paper, you could probably say that Jerzino has a little bit of an advantage when it comes to the credentials in striking. But when you see it play out in the MMA realm and you see the guy who's more active and can, you know, change it up even more, you got to go with Ghana. I wouldn't even be surprised if he's going to go out there and put on his wrestling shoes, take this fight to the ground and pull off a submission of his own. Now, I know that Jerzino is not Rafael Pessoa or, or Dante Mays, but you still got to believe that he's going to have the, the grappling advantage here, and not to mention the submission advantage too. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him go out, go out there and take down Rosenstrike as well. Now, if this fight was a three-round fight like it was originally scheduled to be because this fight card was scheduled to have Yuri Prohaska and uh, Dominic Reyes headline the card, unfortunately, that fight falls through. Now we get these guys stepping in on five rounds. But if it was a three-rounder, I'd probably hit that uh, Cyril Ghana via decision prop as I think that would have been a solid spot. But this going five rounds... I could see Cyril Ghana probably wanting to diminish the amount of chances and the, the percentage uh, that Jerzinho has in terms of winning this fight. And that could be the takedown. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see him go out there, uh, again, take him down, uh, do some good damage from him top, whether it's ground and pound or looking for a submission of his own. But man, the guy is strong. He's powerful. He's big, athletic. Uh, the guy seems to have it all for a guy that could be a potential future champion. Again, the only thing we haven't really seen is him, how he deals with the guy that's going to be able to take him down. Um, will he be able to get right back up to his feet? Um, will that suck out his cardio? Again, luckily for him, he doesn't have to worry about that here with Rosenstreich, who doesn't really go for takedowns. Mainly a striker, mainly looking to take your head off. And given the, the type of movement, and I got to say, I'll 
come out on a limb here and say I think that Ghana has probably the best uh, the best movement in the heavyweight division given how big he is, right? The guy just moves so fluently uh, or fluidly and, and smoothly um, and is able to get out of the way of big shots. He ate some big shots from Junior Dos Santos as well too. I'm not sure if he has the knockout power of Rosenstrike at this point in his career, but it's a good sign that he was able to eat those shots and keep chugging forward. So I, I like Ghana. I don't mind the minus 270. More, uh, more than likely a parlay piece as well too but I think he wins this fight at least 75 to 80 percent of the time given that Rosenstrike's path to victory is very minimal here which is just seeking that knockout uh, he's not going to outpoint Ghana here he's not going to outgrapple him so he's going to have to go out there and try to knock this guy's head off and I don't think he's going to be successful in doing so so I like Cyril Ghana here I'm gonna say either I'd be surprised if this actually goes five rounds to be honest I, I think we'll see Cyril actually grapple a little bit more here. I think we'll see him take him down. I think we'll see him, uh, you know, lay some ground and pound and maybe even pull off a submission here. So uh, either... Do, I'm interested to see what the props are too because the props aren't fully out yet. Again, I'm recording this on the Saturday before the fight. Uh, let's see if they did release anything yet. No props or anything yet on this fight. I'll go with TKO round three or round four via ground and pound, but if the submission prop is looking nice, I might have to take a little bit of a sprinkle on that as well too. But I'll go with uh, Cyril Ghana probably by round three or round four uh, TKO. And those are the breakdowns. I appreciate you guys watching the podcast as always, supporting your boys as always. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe below if you haven't already. Check out the Patreon if you guys want to support your boy a little bit more. Five bucks a month, ton of value for the amount of uh, information, perks, and, and treats that you guys get. So make sure you guys check that out. And if you want to support me, that's the best way to do so. Also, coolbet.com, promo code MMALOTN2. Gets you guys a, a solid uh, deposit bonus. And yeah, that's about it. Here's to hoping that uh, the lock of the night play comes through and, and a couple underdogs that I like as well come through so we can get back on the winning track and start distancing ourselves from the, the earlier L's in the year and uh, keep this train going. So shout out to all everybody. Shout out to the haters. Shout out to the lovers. Shout out to all everybody that supports your boy. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, and good luck this weekend. And also remember, Thursday, I'll see you guys for the Propping You Up ep episode on odds at 8 p.m. Eastern. Friday, I'll see you guys for the final weigh-in at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I believe Thursday afternoon as well, we'll, I'll be dropping that DFS show on Sal Vetri's channel, getting a lot of good responses from that. Shout out to you guys for supporting me on that side. And then obviously... On uh, fight day, 1 p.m. Eastern, the MMA Lawcast Live, as always, taking all your questions, comments, and concerns. Uh, between now and then, I'm sure there's a bunch of shit that pops up, but that's the best way to get a hold of me. I might I might be doing a Locky late night episode one of these uh, coming days as well, too, so maybe look out for that. Turn on your notifications, turn on the subscribe thing, and you guys will know whenever I'm going live. Love doing those. Uh, it's it's a great, great time. And uh, the, the community that's trying to be built uh, with that Locky Late Night thing is just amazing. So shout out to everybody that hops on for that. All right, I'm done. Good luck on your best this weekend. And I'll see you guys throughout the week.